0: You know, we spend a great deal of our energy addressing the issue of spiritual maturity within the church. After all, our purpose this morning is to praise God by edifying the saints, which means that we come together on Sunday mornings with the assumption that every person that walks into this sanctuary is not perfect in glorifying God. Fundamentally, at the core of what Christians believe, as revealed in Scripture, we believe that when we come together, we're not perfect. We're not perfect in the way that we glorify God. We're not perfect in the way that we worship Him. But we believe that by coming together, opening up His Word, being faithful to it, that edification might take place. That is, that we might be made more perfect or progressively more perfect in our obedience of doing these things. When you think about it, the beliefs that we're not perfect and that through God's grace that we can be made more perfect as a result of um, glorifying God is actually quite an audacious um, assumption. To assume that I am not perfect, but by coming to God, I might be made more perfect requires not only a great deal of faith, but a great deal of tenacity to even believe that this is possible. I've accepted that I'm not perfect and that's not difficult, but that by worshiping God I can be made more perfect is quite a leap. To add to that, when we truly apply to our lives that we belong to God and exist with the purpose of knowing God and bringing Him glory, it inadvertently motivates us to place our entire focus on that. If we, what I'm saying is, if we believe what we say, that I'm not perfect, but by worshiping God, I become progressively more perfect, and I really grapple with how audacious such an assertion is, when I add to that, my understanding of what the Bible reveals then as man's purpose in creation, which is to bring God glory a natural reaction might be to run away from everything that is not purely worshiping God. And in fact, to abandon everything in life that is not pivotal around the church. It inadvertently motivates us to abandon everything that exists in this world. That would simply mean pursuing God. And through history, we've actually seen many examples of societies that have formed from this one kind of idea being developed further societies that disconnect themselves from the world that they only pursue god in my own life i've experienced what comes about i would describe it as um, a discontentment in my life simply because there's pragmatic things that come up in life that we have to address that are not pivotal to worshiping God. They seem rudimentary, just kind of day-to-day business type things. I've experienced um, discontentment in, in, in jobs because I would rather be pursuing God or my understanding of God. And I think later we found out that in my own life, that was a calling into ministry that I needed to surrender to. And I realized that that's not the same for everyone but I can remember clearly how aimless and pointless secular employment seemed when I really wrapped my head around my entire existence being the purpose of glorifying God. Isn't it interesting that in Paul's application through the book of Ephesians, he is now moved to from this great doctrinal perspective of adoption, And he's now applying it to everything in life. He he takes our adoption, our new identity, our new family, and he applies it immediately to our life in families through marriage, families through child rearing, and what we'll come to this morning, to work, to employment. We're called to worship God in life and that he... We're told that he provides for us, that his sovereignty and his providence established things for us. That means if we're holding in line with Scripture, the only rational um, conclusion that we can reach is that we are not supposed to be abandoning all things that are outside of the church, but rather applying what it means to be a part of the church to all things in a holistic sense. Knowing God, then, is knowing His purpose, turning to Him and acknowledging Him in all things. And I'll ask that as we turn to our text this morning in Ephesians chapter 6, we'll look at verses 5 through 9, and I'll ask that as we consider ourselves as new creations in Christ, existing in Him with the purpose of knowing Him and glorifying Him, that we would really seek to know how it is that church life affects not just our life at church, but everything in our life. Picking up where we left off in Ephesians, from Ephesians 6, 5 through 9, this last section of the sermon series, looking at our relationships, I want us to really take hold of what does it mean to honor God. We've explored great doctrinal truths in looking at, What was my identity outside of Christ? What is my identity now in Christ? What is my identity as a church? And now, how does that apply to my relationships? I will take a break from Ephesians after this week. And I'm really sad because Ephesians chapter 6 just gets so good. But I do think it's time to take a break that we wouldn't become discouraged or bored of how monumental what Paul is writing is. We'll take a jump to the Old Testament and and study for a few weeks, but the application from what we've studied won't end. What we find is that the God of the New Testament is the same God of the Old Testament. The same God that is encouraging believers to know God so that they can worship Him in every area of their life is the same God working in the Old Testament to guide a nation to glorify Him. That said, hopefully your Bibles are open now and we can begin to read. And before we read, let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning and the time that we have to come together, for bringing us together, that we might worship you. Lord, I pray that we might glorify you, that our hearts would be ready to worship, that our attention would be on you, that our ears would be open, that we would hear the truth that you have for us, that we would be obedient to you. And Lord, that our hearts would not resist you. Lord, we seek you for all things and our understanding and also for our worship. God, I pray that you would give us a great deal of insight this morning as we read your text, as we read your word, as we look at it as inspired and infallible, and we seek to know how it applies to our lives. God, would you guide us and make us wholly presentable to you? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. And the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters. Do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Three points this morning I'd like to look at. And the first one, we'll look at what does it mean to be a laborer? Paul addresses bond servants, and we should address that we don't have bond servants today. But um, this was a part of the New Testament a world that Paul was writing to, that there were those who were indebted and served in that regard. I would look at this then and say that it's easily applicable to any laborer or somebody who is working under the authority of somebody else bond servants obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling paul writes the question then is that as christians because paul is not writing to everyone in the whole world but he's writing specifically to christians the church in ephesus more specifically and he says church in ephesus because you're christians if you're also a bond servant Make sure that you're a bondservant in a Christian way. That means obeying your earthly master with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Well, this is the same thing that we've actually seen looking at in marriage relationships, that husbands and wives should respect and love one another in the same way that they love and respect Christ. In the same way that Christ has loved the church. That in parental relationships, that fathers should love their children, not provoking them into wrath, but in the same way that Christ has already modeled for them love, or our Heavenly Father has modeled for us love in our adoption. Fathers are supposed to present that to their children, that children are supposed to obey their parents. And this theme keeps coming up. As Christians, if you serve under the authority of somebody else, you should labor as those who know God. Really, the point of all of these sections is not how you should behave in this world, or it's not really even a commandment, go out and do these things. Rather, it is really simple, know God. And actually, if you know God, all of these things will come about naturally. But it's revealed in His Word that we would have the example before us labor as those who know God. The truth is, well, and I realize the world that we live in today, they call it the the great resignation because nobody wants to work. And everyone seems to have no problem resigning jobs. It's actually kind of strange. I've never known so many people to quit at one time. It's just mind-blowing. I think it stems from a culture that is not in the practice of giving thanks to God. And I don't mean that in a condescending way, but if we really understand what God is doing and we understand that even our employment comes about through the sovereignty of God's will in allowing us to have jobs that our appointments come from Him, that our work comes from Him, then we owe thanks to God for giving us opportunities to work. And we should view our jobs and our positions as God-given appointments to do His work. It's not by accident or chance that we are in the positions that we're in, even if we're retired or anything else. It's not by accident that these things come about. Regardless of where you are working, you should have a view of God's provisions in giving you that blessing. It's very easy, especially in the world that we live in where With the great resignation, the the common masses tell us that you are such a great employee, make sure you're taking full advantage of all of your talent and all the good that is inside of you and that you're being paid your worth. And I won't say it's right for somebody not to get paid a fair wage. But is our mind really focused on my ability to establish myself in a position? Is that really the goal? Is that the purpose of life even? If that's your purpose in life, I would encourage you to truly seek God's wisdom because that's not what you were created for. Why does man exist? The catechist would tell us man exists to glorify God and to know him. That's why you exist. Well, what point then does your work have? God gave you that job. And he gives you every opportunity that comes after that too. Once we become aware that the main business that we have in this world, that we are here for, is to know God, most of life's problems actually tend to fall into place. J.I. Packer said that. Once we are aware that our main business that we're here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place on their own accord. The issues that we're up against, the different circumstances, the different things that, that are bothering us or burdening us, the things that we're tiresome over, the issues that keep us up late at night, those things that worry us and burden us, when we really understand that the business that we're here for is to know God, these things fall into place on their own. Because we see not only God's providence in making these things happen, but we see His sovereignty in allowing them to happen. We understand and we yield to the fact that things aren't out of control, but they're in perfect control. Paul writes that it's with fear and trembling that we should obey as to the Lord. Fear. What is that fear then? As any person who has a boss or an authority over them, what is our fear in making sure that we're obedient to them? It was very simple. What should I be afraid of? That I would be disobedient to God. I mean, this is troublesome. I think, based on the energy level of this morning, it's safe to say I'm the only one who has ever disagreed with a boss. What do you do? I go to the boss and I say, I don't agree with you. And he says, thank you for telling me that. We're still going to do it my way. But what about my convincing argument? We're still going to do it this way. Yes, we are. Because you haven't told me anything that contradicts my values, that contradicts God's word. And so, right now, with fear and trembling, I'm going to be obedient. Because God told me to be obedient. It's actually an act of worship. Even in my day-to-day life, to be obedient is an act of worship. The same kind of worship that you would have in church with with great music, with voices rising around you and, and, and knowing God's presence because you can see it on the faces of those people that you sing with. Discovering great insights like gems and rubies within the Bible and turning to it and saying, My God, you are amazing. And you're my God and you love me. It's the same kind of worship to say, I will obey. Because it teaches us more about God. It not only does that, but it honors and it glorifies Him. It glorifies Him because it's the way that we're supposed to live. Too often we approach making life's decisions that God's will will be able to work through whatever decisions we make instead of considering that God, in fact, has a will and a desire. Yes, you're going to make mistakes. I said one of the first assumptions we make as Christians walking into the sanctuary is that nobody in here is perfect. Despite our failings, God's will is still going to be done. Yes, it's true. You are not so powerful that you will make a mistake so grievous that God's will won't be accomplished. In fact, anyone that does any rudimentary study of the Bible will find God works through man's failings in amazing ways. So God, if you've allowed this person to have authority over me, What if they fail? I'm supposed to obey. Because we recognize in life that it's not about the decisions that I want to make. That I can go around running and doing this, that, and the other, and that God's going to work regardless because none of it really matters. With fear and trembling, we're supposed to regard how important it is that we would be found obedient to God. I understand that God has a will, and so every decision that I take when I make it, I consider what is God's will in this moment. Really seriously, think about it. How do we live our lives? If we really believe the things that the Bible is teaching us, I believe that God has a will in everything, do I really take every decision in my life to Him? Or do I say, well, this decision's too small for God. I'll take care of it. God's going to work even if I make a mistake. God's not in the business of delegating His will, humans have to do that. And our failed picture of God and the work relationship is that it's necessary for man to delegate some of these decision making responsibilities because some things are just burdensome and cumbersome to have to deal with. But God's omnipotent and omniscient. There's no cumbersome need, He's totally able to know exactly what He wants to happen. Do we seek His will? If we believe truly that God has a will, we should bring life's decisions to God and seek His will. What caused the first king of Israel, after all, to lose God's favor? Saul failed to seek God's will. This is the same picture that we see time and time again in the Bible. It's when we fail to bring life's decisions to God that we begin to lose well, we don't lose knowing Him, but we certainly lose the connection that we have with Him. It's a tailspin. It's a positive reinforcement circle. Because I'm disobedient in the small things, how am I going to be obedient in the big things? That's the same thing Jesus says. If I can trust you with the small things, then I'll be able to trust you with the big things. That's how trust is built, isn't it? Isn't that how you've come to trust anybody in your life? You've trusted them with small things. They've gained favor with you and you've trusted them with larger things. Paul's encouragement before this, the, the undergirding mark is uh, verse 20 in chapter 5. That I'm sorry, verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That all Christians are supposed to have the submission to others in the church and in that same regard in verse 15 he's giving us a picture look carefully then how you walk not as unwise but as wise making the best use of the time because the days are evil the encouragement look carefully as you walk is the word circumspectly or looking around that we should observe the world and we should think about what it's actually teaching and think for ourselves not in the sense that we rely on our own logic, but we rely on the wisdom that God's already provided for us. Really, truly, if you understand what the Bible's writing about the nature of man, you realize that even your thoughts are deceptive. So many people try to rationalize or or use philosophy to try and understand how they're supposed to approach God. The only way to know God is through the truth that He's given us, which requires, first and foremost, saying, I am corrupted and turning to his wisdom, allowing the Bible to speak for itself. When it says bond servants, obey your earthly masters. The Bible speaks for itself. Walk differently than the world because it's not about your own advantages or the way that you promote yourself or anything else. It's against human logic and reason. How are we going to know those moments that we're supposed to seek peace from God when we make decisions as they pertain to life if we don't seek Him? As they pertain to our careers and vocations, how are we supposed to make decisions if we do not seek God? I should be afraid not to obey God's will. Should I not have the same fear when I face the responsibilities and the roles that He places in me? Before coming to Denver Street Baptist Church, I was a very tenacious youth pastor at Temple Baptist Church in Rogers. And I say tenacious just because I'm young. And you guys know young people. They get their feathers ruffled and they think they're smarter than everyone else. And and most of the time they are. But there's just a lot of zeal and not a lot of maturity. It's an awful combination. A lot of zeal and not a lot of maturity. Man, I thought I knew everything. Especially everything that was wrong in youth ministry. I mean, really you look at the youth ministry movement and what you find throughout history in the decades is it really got stood up as this big people attraction making things and youth ministries, you know, had pizza parties and everything else and they attracted the kids but it's actually what caused all of the kids not to be in church anymore because they weren't discipled one bit. They weren't taught to know God. Oh, and their parents viewed it as just kind of an excuse. Instead of being a parent and raising my children, I'll just drop them off at church so that they can be discipled. Oh, and the parents had no discipleship either in their life. And so this self-perpetuating cycle that leads us down, down into the spiral, that everything's falling apart because the parents aren't discipled, the children see the hypocrisy and, and everything else, and they're running away. I thought I knew exactly what was wrong in youth ministry. If only the parents could get involved, and we actually discipled the kids instead of just spending money on pizza. It was humbling to find out I was not the only person in the world with these thoughts. Uh, There's a great deal of ministers that are working in the same vein that realize that discipleship is the most important thing the church is called to do, especially with the young lives of people that we've been given. And and, and so, well, I thought part of the problem was that there's a bunch of youth pastors out there that, well, they just view youth ministry because we've established it as a part of the church. This youth pastor, it's just a stepping stone. And we've commercialized and westernized the structure of the church so much so that, well, the first step is, I'll just get a management position and then I'll get a senior management position. I'll keep moving. Well, that's not the way the church is supposed to work and everyone got it wrong. I thought, well, I'm Ephesians 4, five 15, I'm walking circumspectly to the world. Well, it turns out I'm the guy that was only in youth ministry for two years. How humbling was that? Actually, there's... Almost a a bit of defensiveness, feeling like I have to explain myself that in the midst of COVID, these were the circumstances that presented themselves. And you know what I've realized? I really don't care. Because I brought my decision to God and I can't tell you the immeasurable amount of peace that came with doing something that went against what the world had actually. Because I was as much as part of the world as everyone else, right? the westernization of everything else. I was as much a part of it as everyone else who thought that looking at the youth pastor as a stepping stone and everything else was a, a part of the problem. Well, it turns out, walking against what I thought was right meant actually obeying what God was leading and doing. And if you don't believe that God was leading and doing, let me remind you of the circumstances whenever I left that role. Michelle was pregnant. Not a little pregnant, eight months pregnant. What are the three most stressful things that any person can do? Buy a house or sell a house, have a baby change jobs. We did all three of them in the same month. Now, in retrospect, Michelle has, has maybe been reaping the consequences afterwards, but I can't tell you the peace that both of us had during that month. And that's a big life decision, but we sought God's will in it. We sought God's will in it and He gave us peace about it. Oh, and with fear and trembling, I realized that I could possibly be being disobedient. But the peace that I had allowed me to know that God was leading us in a different direction. Ultimately, my heart had become so broken for the needs that churches had for a pastor, and I realized that I just wasn't cool enough for youth ministry anyway. Everything fell into place and it's continued to fall into place. I don't see people doing that. I don't see people seeking God's will at all. The way that we measure our decisions is a pros and cons list. Is this advantageous enough? Will I prosper enough? Will this be good for me? Will I gain the respect of more people by doing this? Whatever your motivation is, I do not see people seeking God's will. And just like Saul, with his first sin being that he would, instead of seeking God's will, seek his own, he was motivated to please the people. And I see us doing the same thing. Would I please people with this decision instead of our mind being consumed by the only purpose that man has been put here for, which is to please and glorify God? That's what we're here for. Why is that not our priority? Jeremiah Burroughs, the Puritan, writes that Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Perhaps the problem that we face is that We've been taught to be discontent with everything that we have, unhappy with everything that we have. And if at least not unhappy, we should at least fantasize and imagine or dream about what the future might hold for us. I mean, that's what it takes to be a visionary leader, isn't it? I have to have some picture of what tomorrow would look like. And instead of putting things in God's hands, All we've done is bred discontentment and dissatisfaction, ungratefulness in our own lives, that there is no contentment, that we've robbed ourselves of this this commitment, and we've actually robbed ourselves of our own priority because we're no longer seeking to please God, we're seeking to please ourselves. That's why Paul writes, replace eye service and people pleasing with a sincere heart and good will. There's a promise to back this up. Going all the way back to Leviticus chapter 25, there's a promise right behind this that knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. Regardless of what position we've been called to, what role we've been put into play, recognizing God's sovereignty, I realize I exist for the purpose of glorifying Him, And I will glorify Him. And He's promised to reward me for that. And it won't be in this life, but guess what? This life is short. It won't be on this side of heaven, but this life, the Scriptures call it as faint as a vapor. Steam coming up off the lake early in the morning. And before even the steam stops, it still blows away and This This promise backs it up. The relationship in which sinful human beings know God is one in which God, so to speak, takes them onto His staff to be henceforth His fellow workers and personal friends. Look at this. Look how amazing this is. He, God, if you look at 1 Corinthians 3, 9, and you look at what He's doing, He adopts us into His family, not just as a familial friend, but He brings us in as fellow workers with purpose to glorify Him, to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth through our labors and our work. The places that He puts us is by design. And He puts us there, and He does all of these things, not just in His good will, but because He has a purpose for us to glorify Him there. We're supposed to, by all means, labor as those who know God. This is the purpose, that we would know God. We should also lead like those who know God. Masters, Paul writes in verse 9, do the same that he who is both their master and yours in heaven. I'm sorry, masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Do not threaten those you lead, Paul writes. Now, this is actually really good leadership principles here. First, that a leader should be one that uses the minimum authority necessary to make things happen. I mean, it's easy to say, I'm the boss and so this is going to happen, but it's actually much better in any organization to use the littlest amount of authority that you possibly have to use to make things move. Why? Well, it all comes back to knowing who your master is. See, threatening is ineffective, it's less effective than encouraging people, and the only real threat that we have to observe is the threat of disobedience to God. And so, as a Christian in a leadership position, shouldn't you be sure that people know that you fear disobedience to God as much as they should? And in such, shouldn't you be careful to make sure that what you ask of them is not against God's will? Using as little power as possible, we find that the reluctant leader doesn't merely give accolades to others, but it is their true joy to see others awaken to their potential and exceed their greatest dreams. It is the hope of every good teacher to have students who take up their work and to go further and to teach more than they are even possible. To be surpassed is actually the ideal in any leadership role. To be replaced... Is the goal not a sign of failure? Leaders must realize that their authority is temporary and given to them by God. And leaders should love those that they lead the way that God loves them. It's a special calling when we realize that through God's sovereignty, we've been given positions of authority over other people. Leaders should realize that their position does not make them different than those that they lead in God's eyes. The real difficulty in leadership is being consistently faithful to God. Because it's very easy under the stresses and the burdens that come that we lose sight of the fact that we are the same as those that we lead. Well, I think that by some way I'm more disciplined and so I've earned this position and I've done the things that I need to do for this and I can teach others to be disciplined. And that's, not just, that's just not the case. It's disillusionment. Disillusionment takes the question, what does it profit a man if he gains this world and loses himself? And disillusionment exposes that while we were supposedly serving the kingdom, we somehow became the king. And when we thought we were following Jesus, we inexplicably made him a servant of our dreams. The only real tragedy is the leader who never allows disillusionment to wear him to a nub and to expose the godliness, godlessness of his busyness when we lose sight of the fact that regardless of the position as as leaders, as those who are uh, laborers or working under the authority of somebody else or maybe somewhere in between, regardless of our relationship to those with authority over us or those who serve under our authority, we must always have at the forefront of our mind that we are children of God with a master in heaven that we fear disobedience to because we exist for His pleasure to please Him. Masters, know that He who is both their master and yours is in heaven. And when the same promise in verse 8, that the good work that anyone does that will they will receive it back from the Lord when this time comes of judgment and uh, reward in heaven there will be no partiality we will all regardless of our position be equal and as God judges us as we receive crowns and glory, as we lay them down at the feet of Christ, as we recognize the one who has actually given us purpose to exist, not just in work and in labors and in toils, but given us purpose for his glory, he will judge with no measure of whether you were a master or a bondservant. As one final note in closing this morning, a word continues to pop up as we look at our relationships. The word obey. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Obey Him. Children, obey your parents. Bondservants, obey your earthly master. And even the undergirding theme, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. I'd ask us to think, what does this word obey mean? Why is it so important? Why does the way that we obey in our relationships have so much effect on the way that we are living godly lives? How do we glorify God through our obedience to one another, through our submission to one another? Is it simply that through experience in life that we learn what it means to, in a metaphysical sense, to submit myself to God? Is it simply that because I'm put in positions where I have to obey my parents, my husband, my you know, my, my boss, is it because of this that I'm just taught what it actually means to yield my own will before God? But something more than that, I think. no these are these are imperative commands. This isn't just an instruction or allegory or a principle that we should grab hold of. If that were the case, once I grab hold of what it means to obey God, I can run away and I can do whatever I want with all these other relationships. Instead, the way that God's inspired word is written these things is that you should grab hold of what it means to obey God through these things, continue to do them because this is actually obedience to God. The Greek word apakeo used here for obey in the Greek lexicon is a similar equivalent translated in the lexicon to the Hebrew word, and I hope some of you are familiar with this Shema or the root word Shema. You might remember about this time last year we were doing a study through Deuteronomy chapter 6. The Shema. It's interesting that in the Christian faith, there's something different than every other world religion that I can observe. In all world religions, there is the vision that we set in our mind that focuses us and moves us closer to God. The Bible, all the way back to Judaism, through God's revelation, is not look, but the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. to listen. And here, we find expounded through translators and and God's, I would say again, sovereignty and provision and writing the New Testament in both Hebrew and in Greek, bondservants obey this equivalent word in Greek to obey being an uh, expansion in our understanding of what does it mean to hear. Right, it's a, in one ear, out the other. No, it's obey in one ear and then do something about it. To God, to obey is greater than any act of worship or any great act of sacrifice. 1 Samuel 15, tells us, as the Lord a great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of the rams. We say that we understand what the Bible has written to us and why sacrifices and the sacrificial sacrificial systems are no longer necessary. But do we understand what it means for us to actually become the act of worship in God? Do we actually understand how it applies that every believer is now a priest before God? What does it mean to walk circumspectly to the world? Or as Romans 12 writes, that our bodies would become our spiritual sacrifice for God? What does it mean that obedience would actually bring us closer to Him? Why is it easier for us to look at obedience to God and specifically around the Great Commission that we should go and find our place wherever God has given us and that we should bring His Word to the rest of the world? For many, it's easier to go to the other side of the world than it is to go across the street and to talk to our neighbors about Jesus. It's uncomfortable to share our faith with people in our immediate context because we have to continue to do life with them when it's over. And it might get awkward if we bring up Jesus. But there is no greater way of pleasing him than to be exemplary in the way that we work, to be the greatest laborer in any position, the greatest master in any position that we seek His will every decision that we make. That we observe Him and that we obey Him. That our families are exemplary examples of what does it look like to obey Christ and to obey Him. To purify and to wash, to make holy and to sanctify to in the church, to realize that we are edifying one another and that we serve one another and we have an obligation to do so. Individualistic faith shrinks our experience of God and saps the full power of the Spirit in our midst. But when we thrive most, when we live out faith in the presence of the family of God, in all the weirdness and wonderful diversity, we find what it truly means to worship. We're all servants. We're all equally serving in the positions and roles that God has given to us. Do we see Him in placing us where we are at? Do we have contempt for Him then when He places us somewhere that we say we do not deserve or desire? Do we have contempt for the sovereign God because He has not given us what we think we should have to be content? Is our worship so superficial that we do not see our steps ordered in every moment by the same God that formed us? It is no wonder that we do not live as obedient children when we do not take the time to listen to God in our daily lives. We do not serve a God that has left us in an ambiguous, nebulous type of pursuit of understanding what He has for us. Rather, we serve a God that desires you to know Him. In fact, designed you to know Him. Revealed Himself to you so that you could know Him. You will not know Him by what goes on in your own head. Unless you read how He's already revealed Himself. And you seek to obey every bit of it. Would you pray with us? Father in heaven, I thank you so much for your word this morning. God, I recognize you in realizing that I have failed and that we have failed to obey you faithfully. Lord, I ask that I would turn away from that and realize that I can only do so through your grace, your continued measure of grace. God, I pray that you would guide me, that my repentance would be a genuine turning towards you, facing you, that I might hear you, and that when I hear, I might obey. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.